We are finishing the Sermon on the Mount today. Can you believe it? This is the 29th Sunday. And you know what I thought when, when I was starting to make my notes and I was writing down, you know, end of Sermon on the Mount, 29. All of a sudden, my OCD brain kicked in. It's like, we've got to have one more. We can't stop at 29. It was so weird how that just hit me. It's like, oh, that's not right. Boy, that stuff dies hard, doesn't it? This is the 29th and final Sunday of the Sermon on the Mount because I mastered my OCD-ness, or as I like, as I like to say, CDO, you know, the order that God intended. So as we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we come to the way that it is masterfully wrapped up and ended. We have to ask ourselves a question again, I think. What is the Sermon on the Mount? What is it really? We spent 29 weeks talking about the Sermon on the Mount, and it would be terrible if we couldn't walk away with that elevator pitch. We couldn't walk away with that one line that sums up what is the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to proffer my one-liner. It doesn't have to be yours, but it's my one-liner. It's my one-line statement about what the Sermon on the Mount really is. And that is an exercise in deconstruction. And I know deconstruction can be kind of a loaded word for us because it means so many different things. But it's an exercise in stripping away everything that we think we know. That is what the sermon is about. That's what Jesus' way is about. And if you really take a look at what the sermon is doing, it is a ruthless and unapologetic tearing down, taking upside down every bit of the world as we think we see it and understand it. You ever think about the word ruthless? Who is Ruth anyway? Why are we without Ruth? Actually, Ruth is the archaic Middle English word for mercy and compassion. And so if you are ruthless, then you start to figure that out, right? And just for free, the name Ruth means a compassionate friend. How about that? So you get all that stuff for free. Ruthless and unapologetic, tearing down of everything that we think we know about the world. That's what the sermon is doing. And it may not seem that way to you, and it may not feel that way to you. But if you really let the sermon get in deep, if you let it go where it's supposed to go and give it its due, let it take you to its radical conclusions, that's exactly what it's going to be doing. It is going to be tearing down the world we think we know. Because how and what we think is all focused on physical survival. The way our minds work, what we think about, the way they function, it's about survival. And it's absolutely necessary, obviously, that we survive <laughs> physically. But what we need to understand, that that survival comes at the expense of remaining fearfully defended. That survival comes at the expense of seeing ourselves separate from, in competition with, and always calculating how we can move through given situations to our advantage, to be able to survive. That's the trade-off that we have to deal with. And what the sermon is doing is helping us to understand that and start to balance those two imperatives. Because until we become fearlessly vulnerable, open and connected, we're never going to understand what Jesus is talking about. And our mind works against us in that respect, you know? 
Jesus is trying to break us free of our human limitations. You know, what comes with the birth certificate? What comes with self-awareness and the way that our minds work? Jesus creates limitations that Jesus is trying to break us through. And as he comes to the end of, of his sermon here, and he's wrapping up, he's trying to make a really fine point of it all. And so if we reread what we read last time, at Matthew 7, starting at verse 21, here's how he's starting to bring this down. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Fighting words, very, very strong. Jesus is drawing a really hard line here. There's so many little nuances that, that move it into different places. I mean, this idea of entering or not entering kingdom as if God is the gatekeeper God lets you in because you performed well or keeps you out because you haven't is, is a misinterpretation in the first place. Kingdom is what we become from the inside out. When we move into this place of connection, when we can drop enough of the, the limitations, the sense of separation that our minds impose on our lives, then we are in kingdom. Jesus is stating the fact. He's not stating that he's the gatekeeper that God the Father is the gatekeeper. This is what we do to ourselves. The door is wide open. It's up to us to absolutely walk through. So in these starkest terms that Jesus can muster, he's basically slapping us across the face here, trying to get us to wake up. You can feel the hands on your shoulders shaking you. To shake us, to be able to see that we and God, in either direction, right, can't really know each other. Yada, that word. Remember, knowing in, in the Hebrew mindset is not about intellectual understanding. It's not about collecting data. It's about intimate experience. It's about long-time relationship. It's that kind of knowing that we're talking about here. We and God can't know each other through the processing and the accomplishment focus of our minds. That same mind that helps us survive, does so by separating things out, friends from foes and this from that, and focuses externally on every accomplishment, everything that we can build, everything that can build us up in our own minds and also in front of others, focusing on that accomplishment, again, for survival, and creating constant noise at the same time. That mind is what Jesus is trying to break us through and free from. If you think about our focus on accomplishment, our focus on exterior and external processes that then feed us, right? If you think about the sections of the Sermon on the Mount that we've gone through in these 29 weeks, starting with the Beatitudes, think about those Beatitudes. Blessed are you, enriched, whole, you know, fulfilled are you congratulations to you when you're poor in spirit when you're merciful when you're gentle when you're meek when you're a peacemaker when your heart is unified pure integrated all those things but notice it has nothing to do with accomplishment all of those attributes of the beatitudes aren't talking about accomplishment not talking about power and control not talking about building anything 
It's hard work, make no mistake. But it's the work interiorly of letting go all of these limitations so that we can see clearly what is really right in front of us. The Beatitudes are Jesus' first shot across the bow, that we're talking about something very different here. You come to the party, you come to the table looking through normal eyes, saying, you know, we need to build something great here. There has to be great spectacular things that we do for God in order to be approved. And he's saying, no, it's the lowliest of things. It eventually is the Anavim spirit, the spirit of somebody who's been marginalized, who has been shown that they can't really do for themselves and have to be dependent, have to rely on ultimately God alone because so many people have let them down or have not been there when they needed them to be. And finally, when you realize God alone is that source, now you're in that place of kingdom. And when that start, that beginning, that fearful beginning moves into trust, then gratitude is the character of your being. Beatitudes. At the end, or the, the, after the Beatitudes, in, within Matthew 5, Jesus starts redefining the law. And he's talking about the law in such a way that it's not about understanding the law. It's not about obeying the law. It's not about all the thou shalt nots that you must not do in order to, what, fill in the blank? You know, go to heaven, be approved, you know, get the mortgage to go through, all the things that we think about when we're thinking about God's relationship with us in a contractual basis. It's not about those things, but it's about a graduation from obedience. It's about realizing that when relationship and connection becomes the most important things in our lives, then the law just becomes boundaries within which we need to choose and decide what love requires in this particular moment. Very different way of approaching law. Now it's the law of liberty, that James talks about. Now it's the law of love that supersedes rules and regulations. He's trying to get us to break through that mindset. In Matthew 6, he does the same thing for righteousness and says it's not about just giving alms. It's not about saying prayers at the right time with the right formula. And it's not about fasting and doing all those sorts of things that you think make you righteous. It's not about codes. It's not about rituals. It's not about thou shalt do instead of thou shalt not. But it's about this inner transformation that changes everything. Again, when relationship becomes the most important thing to you, how does that affect your giving? How does that affect your prayer? How does that affect your fasting, which is really a statement about your presence? Everything changes. And you don't have to monitor it. And nobody has to monitor you. Because it's just something that flows out of you. Complete difference. And Matthew 7, we've been talking for the last few weeks about the difference between judgment and discernment. Judgment we should not do because it brings a preset mindset to a situation or a person and judges them accordingly from a distance. We don't have to get close to them. We just see who they are. Ah, I know about you. I know about this situation. I know what this does. As opposed to discernment, which is a conclusion we reach based on experience, which means we had to enter in and get close enough over enough time to understand what it is that this person or this situation or whatever is showing us so that we can react accordingly. We need to discern, otherwise we don't survive. But we don't need to judge. And there's a big difference that Jesus is trying to get across. It's the difference between tasting and seeing. I've always loved that line in the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Because for us, it's all about seeing. We can do that across the parking lot. We can do that from here to Washington, D.C. We can have separation and see. But if you're going to taste something, that's why communion is so strong. We're taking it into our bodies. It has to come into the most sensitive parts of us. We have to be right there. Tasting is discernment. Seeing is judgment. We need to see the difference Jesus is trying to get across to us. It's the difference between this intimate experience we're talking about and a legal judgment that comes down just because it didn't check a box on the form. This is the difference Jesus is trying to get us to see. And further, he's trying to get us to understand that without shattering our legal, intellectual, and ego mind, we are never, ever going to know yada, the love that he calls the good news. How in the world can we? There is a block wall between us and that love of ever understanding how far it goes and how it obliterates all the woulda, coulda, shouldas. You know, this is a whole different way of living life. Do you all remember Zorba the Greek? Anybody ever see that movie? The old black and white 19... Ah, you're too young, Allie, come on. Yeah, all my illusions are not good on you. But uh, Zorba actually was a real person. The author knew a man, I think his name was Georges, Yorgas, uh, Zorbas, and he patterned him after that man. But it was this this Greek man who just lived, you know, he had the joie de vivre, was that what you would say? Yeah, whatever. Anyway, I don't know French. What am I trying to do here? Um, he just lived his life on a whole different pitch. And the, the, the novel is about the disparity between this, this young intellectual who is so tightly wound and Zorba who just lives this huge life. But a couple of quotes. The aim of man and matter is to create joy, according to Zorba. Yeah? Really? The aim of man and matter is to create joy. We wouldn't normally say that, would we? Others would say to create spirit, but that comes to the same thing on another plane. The highest point a man can attain is not knowledge or virtue or goodness or victory, but something even greater, a more heroic and more despairing, sacred awe. I love that. I felt once more how simple a thing is happiness. A glass of wine, a roast chestnut, a wretched little brazier, the sound of the sea, nothing else. And all that is required to feel that here and now is happiness in a simple, frugal heart. Do you see the connection between that and the Beatitudes, the connection between that and where Jesus is driving us with all this redirection, with all this redefinition, with turning our heads 180 degrees to get us to see how love and righteousness and all these things that we have staked our lives on need to change if we're really going to enter this state he calls kingdom. And to get back to the Bible, Ecclesiastes, right? The most depressing book in the Bible, right? only because we're reading it from the wrong viewpoint. But, but listen to what the prophet says in, in the second chapter. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. 
And I know when we think of vanity, we think of conceit, but the real meaning of vanity is purposelessness, meaninglessness. All of this is meaningless, purposeless. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man or the fool. In the coming days, all will be forgotten. Both the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life for the works which I had done under the sun. It was grievous to me. Because everything is futility and striving after the wind. There's an image, striving after the wind. I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity, purposeless, meaningless. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. What does a man get in all his labor and his, in his striving? All his days his task is painful and grievous, even if night his mind does not rest. 3,000 years ago, same things that we go through, right? This too is vanity. There is nothing better for a man or a woman than to eat and drink and tell himself, herself, that their labor is good. I have seen that this is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without God? See, at first you want to slit your wrist when you read this kind of stuff, right? It sounds so depressing. But it's not despair here that the prophet is talking about, that Solomon is talking about. It's not despair. It's deconstruction. Do you see that? He is deconstructing. He has at the end of his life. Old age has forced him to take a look at his own death. And what he finally sees is an end that is like everybody else's end. And everything that he built up in his life as king was going to come to the same end as everybody else's. No more, no less, but certainly no more. This is complete deconstruction of everything that he was about for his entire life. And I'll tell you what, that doesn't die easily. It dies hard. It feels like despair. It feels like the loss of everything that you trusted. But if you will persevere and push on through, what, the, on the, what is on the other side of that is absolute liberation to be free from all of that stuff. You know? This is the realization of a man whose ego has finally been shattered, broken apart so he can see beyond. His last lines there, you know, just eat, drink, and be merry. You know, there's nothing more. Tell yourself that your labor is good. But that's from God. Because who can do that? unless it comes from the hand of God. Everything good that we can experience here comes from the hand of God. And it's simple things. It's the simple things. You know, he's at the end of his life. The curtain is pulled back. He can see what's really going on. It is depressing to the ego, and that's why it sounds depressing to us, because we're processing this through our egoic mind. But really, it's liberating. Jesus says essentially the same thing at Mark 8, verse 34. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, to follow me, to do what I'm doing, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? See what he's talking about? Jesus and Solomon and Zorba here are working overtime to try to show us something that we really need to see, to break us through the futility of thinking that we can accomplish our way into heaven, accomplish our way into the approval and what we need, thinking that we can earn it, thinking that we can strive after it somehow. Can't do it. It's striving after the wind. There's no true meaning out there no matter what Fox Mulder says. It's in here. And Allie didn't know who Fox Mulder is either, so just so you know. <laughs> X-Files? X-Files? Okay, see? All right. Not, not a total loss. I got too old. How did I get so old? So if we're ever really going to follow Jesus, if we're ever really going to experience the good news, We have to break through our legal mindset. It's the only way that this happens. The Sermon on the Mount, to us reading it just with our regular conscious minds, you know, it's nonsensical. (laughs) It's non-logical, even non-rational at times, you know. And it's certainly, and surprisingly, non-moral and non-ethical at times. There are things in there, if you take them literally, you wouldn't do, right? You wouldn't do that. As it's stated, understanding it, completely literally, in our language, it's impossible for us to understand. But that is the whole point. It's impossible to understand because it's not meant to be understood. It's not meant to be just read and understood and put back into some sort of legal structural framework. It's meant to introduce paradox into our lives. Paradox that we can't resolve if we're honest about it and that will drive us through to new and newer understandings, understanding is not the right word, new and new experiences that will give us conviction of what it is that we know that we know is true, even if we can't prove it. Jesus' way itself, capital W, is this way of deconstructing the self, the ego, our mindset, and enter the paradox of now and not yet how we live between those poles. How do we live between heaven and earth? How do we leave, live between intellect and intuition, between male and female and mother and father and all of these different poles that we've been talking about recently? Keeping the paradox alive and let it do its work in us. Living with full conviction and a fearless vulnerability in the presence of uncertainty living with full conviction in the presence of uncertainty and unknowing that takes us to trust. And before we've broken through, it isn't going to make sense. It's going to seem impossible. But Jesus has that covered too, right? Let's take a look at Luke 6, verse 40. He says, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. And that word fully trained is actually translating the Aramaic word gamar. And gamar is the word that is usually translated as perfect. Remember, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and we all freak out because how in the world can we possibly do that? Because we're thinking of perfectionism. But gamar, perfect, means whole. It means complete. It means fulfilled. It means fully trained. It means mature. It's all those types of ideas. And we can get to that. We can get there. Jesus says that we can. And we can become like the teacher. Even though 
The pupil is not greater than the teacher. The pupil, when fully formed, right, can become like the teacher, which means indistinguishable from, at one with. Just as Jesus and the Father are one, Jesus says we can be one. And if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. That's what we're talking about here, this oneness. It just goes through us. And then in John 14, verse 12, he says, Truly I say to you, he who believes in me, and where you see believe, think trust, because it's indistinguishable and inseparable from trust in both Greek and Aramaic. I say to you, he who trusts in me and the works that I do, he will also do. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father because I am one with the Father, and you are one with me, you will do what I do. The pupil will be like the teacher, indistinguishable from and at one with. We can do what Jesus does. We have to do what Jesus does if we want to live the life that kingdom is all about. But we can only do it if we believe, if we trust. Not belief as in mental assent, but deep trust without the knowing. And that doesn't mean that as we believe and trust that we understand. If you were listening closely just a moment ago, I said we need to get to a place of conviction in the presence of uncertainty. So that raises a huge question. Can we be convinced and uncertain at the same time? See, that's a huge question. Can we be convinced and certain at the same time? I've told this story in here many times, and I'm going to tell it again because there's a few of you who haven't heard all my jokes yet. When I was uh, in the midst of my deconstruction, and it was painful, and I was kicking and screaming, I spent a lot of time at Sarah Retreat in Malibu. It was just a haven for me. And uh, when I went there, I would just usually book a room and hang out undirected, and I would book times with the priests and talk. And there was a diocesan priest, uh, Father Fallon, who just became a great friend. And then there was Emery Tang, whose version of the Lord's Prayer I read earlier, who was the um, director of the retreat center of Franciscan and this Chinese national who uh, kind of strode both sides of, of the East and West divide. And I went in, oh, he, um, this was an actual um, weekend retreat that I was auditing. I would just go lurk, you know, just whoever was there, I'd go into all of their meetings and, and listen. And at one point, he, he uh, made this impassioned declaration that Satan was just man's predilection for evil. You know, it wasn't, it's, it's not supposed to be a real being. And, you know, all of my evangelical hairs went up on the back of my neck, and uh, I had my Bible with me. And so after I went and got a time with him in his office, went in with my Bible, and I just started in. And before I could even get the words out, you know, his big hand was up in my face, and he just says, all I can tell you is what I'm convinced of. You go become convinced of what you're convinced of. And the audience was over. Now, at the moment, I thought it was a cop-out. I thought it was an evasion. I thought he was just not answering the question. And thinking back on it, I'm amazed that I didn't just dump him right then. I mean, I've been dumped for a lot less, you know. <laughs> but there was something in me that, that wanted to, you know, he just held this, this fascination. And the knowing that there was something there that I needed, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I couldn't figure it out. But what I realize now in retrospect, it's the only thing that one human being can tell another human being about issues like this. You know, 
Maybe if it's building a house, we can be pretty certain about the way that it's right and the way that it doesn't work so well. But when it comes to spiritual matters, all I can tell you is what I'm convinced of. And you have to go become convinced of what you're convinced of. And if we're convinced of two different things, but our behavior looks just like Jesus, who cares? See, that's the place that we got it all back to front. That's what I learned from Emery Tang. It was so important, the lesson. It wasn't about debating theology. It wasn't about, it wasn't about believing it wasn't about the illusion of believing that we can accomplish certainty. We can't accomplish certainty. It doesn't work that way. Certainty is a unicorn. Okay? And you can put that on your fridge. Certainty is a unicorn. Certainty is striving after the wind. It doesn't exist in spiritual matters. There is no possible way that our finite little human brains are going to be able to hold what the Godhead is all about or what multidimensional whatever this is all about and how we're going to experience our spirituality. Jesus said it's like the wind. It just comes and it goes. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going to, but if you flow with it, you're going to know something that you won't know any other way. Conviction is essential, but there will be no proof for it except for you because it'll be your experience that proves to you your conviction. Certainty is like judgment that we've been talking about, mental constructs. Conviction is like discernment. It's about intimate experience and the result of that experience. Completely different things. We need both in life, but we need to know how to balance them and how to use them most effectively for the task at hand. And if we're talking about spiritual things, it goes in a different direction. And so the question you may be asking was, how do I become convinced? Well, Jesus tells us right here at Matthew 7, starting at verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So what is Jesus stressing there? We have to act. Maybe a better way to talk, think of acting is, is simply doing, but living out. We need to live out what he's talking about, not just let them catch in our brain, not understand them, study them, dissect them, and be able to debate them, but live them out, which does not mean accomplishing something. Okay, let's, we're going to get those two tied up in our brain. Yeah, we've got to do all this action for God, you know, but we're not talking about accomplishing something, striving for something. It means that we're going to be working really hard to be fully present. We're going to be working really hard to be intimate, to be connected, to be fearless enough to let go of enough of our defense to be able to be connected. And it means that we're going to experience firsthand, first person, everything that can't be told to us about a love that is so radical that it defies any kind of logic. A love that G.K. Chesterton, 
checking to see if Ellie was any, yeah, she knows G.K. Chesterton. She, she's cultured. This is the love of God that G.K. Chesterton called the furious love of God. And Brennan Manning picked that up, the furious love of God. And in one essay he wrote, it was a fire, it was a love so fierce that it was indistinguishable from the fires of hell. Now, would you use God's love in an expression like that? Would you choose those particular words to say? See, here's the thing. Crazy words that these mystics, these people who have touched the furious love of God, they all sound crazy. Every single last one of them. Because how do you express the inexpressible? How in the world can you get across what you have become convinced of, what you have experienced, and just put it into words that can actually do anything to move the meter of the person who's listening? You've got to use this giant language. You've got to use these, these heinous images sometimes to try to get across what you've experienced. And it sounds crazy. And until you let go, until you experience things yourselves, it'll continue to sound crazy until that day that you realize that you can read and write and speak and understand crazy yourself. <laughs> and then the things that you say will be just as crazy to the person that you're trying to communicate with, and they're going to look at you like a cocker spaniel, and you realize, I cannot give this to anybody. All I can do is tell you what I'm convinced of and live my life accordingly. That's what Jesus is talking about. How do you become convinced? You live it out. You act it out. You fake it until you make it. You know, you might be afraid, but if you risk something and you put it out there on the line, you will have an experience that will be taking you on the way toward that deep conviction that eventually we call trust. And when you get to trust, then gratitude kicks in. And you're there. Living your life with hope and gratitude in trust is kingdom. This is what Jesus is talking about. The last two verses, 28 and 29, the people were amazed. Who is this guy? When he comes back to Nazareth from the wilderness, isn't this Mary's son, Joseph's son? What the heck? Who is this guy? They're amazed. He's teaching with authority that they don't hear from their lawyers, the scribes and the Pharisees. Who is this guy? How is this? It's they're dazed and confused, I'm sure, too. But what does it mean to have that kind of authority? In John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes, trusts in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. That idea of the only begotten, Ihidaya in Aramaic, is interesting, because we call it only begotten, which sounds like he's the only son, right? No siblings, just one son. And it can mean that. It can mean single and solitary. But what it really means is unified in all aspects of being. That's the real name or the meaning of Ihidaya. So rather than just say only begotten, literally you could say Jesus was a son of unity. Unity's offspring because he was one with, you see. And what that means to us is integrated. Everything that we say and think and do is coming from the same place, and it looks the same. We're not going to be surprising anybody by what we say and what we do. It's all going to be something that people know us by, that kind of integration. And this authority that Jesus speaks with is the authority of the eyewitness, the one who is literally being there. 
seeing and experiencing something that created this oneness of word and choice and being. It's a kind of authority that you can't miss. It's going to hit you right in the face. This deep conviction. I felt it in Emory Tang. That's why I didn't dump him, I'm sure. There was something about him that spoke like Moses coming back from the mountain and his hair is whitened, his countenance is shining. There's something there that tells you this is authentic. Pay attention. There's something here that you need, something here that you can learn. And it rings as authority. It rings as inspiration. But until we step out, until we risk something in the midst of our confusion and our doubt and our uncertainty, we will never be convinced of anything. So how do we step out? How do we do that? What, what are we supposed to risk? Is there a dollar amount, so much that I need to, to risk here? Do I need to build a church? Do I need to go to Africa on a missions trip? You know, what is it that I need to do? How do I step out? How do I do that? Do I care for the homeless? Do I create some kind of, of uh, ministry? Do I sign on to a cause? All that is great stuff, good stuff. Do that if you want to, absolutely. But remember that all of those things can be absolutely ego-driven, absolutely just as focused on accomplishment and building that aggrandizes. And you're just as much in danger at the end of all of that, of Jesus and the Father saying, I never knew you. Look at all this stuff you did. But we didn't have any time together. I don't know you. And it's not that I'm keeping you out. I'm punishing you because... How did you know? You were doing what you thought was the right thing to do. But now when you get to the place where the ego finally shatters and you realize, oh, there's something else going on here. Now you are finally opened up enough to take the next phase of the journey, the second half journey. That'll take you into real intimate knowing. I'm not keeping you out, God's saying to us, but you're keeping yourself out because we don't know each other. It's always the little things. The little things are the things that really change us. But at the same time, little things carry big risk, right? It's not that they're not risky. Another story that I know I've told before, but not so many times. In high school, there was one boy, and I still remember his name to this day, Abel Marmaleo. And he looked probably like the image you have in your mind right now from hearing his name, Abel Marmaleo. He was, he was uh, kind of a nerdy kid. I do believe he had a pocket protector, really thick glasses where his eyes were like amplified and a buzz cut and his pants were kind of high. He wore them up high. And he always walked through the, the campus as if he was going to get hit by somebody. He would hold on to his books real tight, and he'd kind of hunch over, and he'd walk really fast. And so he was just a kid that no one really wanted to hang out with. And, you know, I wasn't God's gift to anything, but I was senior class president, and I had a few other things going on. When I look back on that, and I think of all the times in the cafeteria, he sat completely alone every time in the cafeteria. What would have happened? How would it have changed things if I went over and sat next to him? If I gave him the slightest sense of approval for no reason, if I walked with him across the campus, if I befriended him, how would that have changed? Not so much him. He's probably a multi-billionaire by now, right? That's the way those things usually go. How would it have changed me? 
If I had risked my reputation, my standing, what people thought of me, and not only that, it wasn't so much that I was even thinking these things. I mean, he pretty much didn't even enter my space. You know, I saw him, I recognized, I acknowledged him, but I didn't think about going and connecting on that level. It was a risk, or it was just something that was outside of my awareness bubble, and I never did it. If I had, if I had whatever it took for an 18-year-old to be able to bridge that gap, maybe I could have been talking crazy 20 years earlier than I finally did. And how would that have changed my life? It's the smallest things. Think about the things that you fear to do. Think about where your offenses lie. Think about where your resistance is. And in the tiniest ways, can you push through that? Can you connect with something or someone in a way that you didn't before and just see what ensues? See what happens? This is really what it's all about. I had too much fear and insecurity back then, unawareness, to value or risk an association that I didn't understand. But without that, we don't become convinced of anything. What are you convinced of? What are you really convinced of? And what are you convinced of that you know you can't prove to anybody? You know, you can't prove it, only to yourself. What is it that you're convinced of that you're willing to take criticism for? Ridicule, abandonment. Are you willing to be convinced enough to tell someone what you're convinced of and let it stand. I remember early on, 25, 30 years ago, whatever it was, doing a thought experiment with myself, trying to figure out what I thought I was convinced of, what I thought was absolutely and objectively true. And I went through the whole gamut, everything that I could think of, everything that I was being taught, everything that everyone else held so dear, all the essentials of Christianity. And when I got down to the bottom of the dog pile, the only thing that I could say with certainty that I was convinced of, that was absolutely true, no matter what, was that unity is better than disunity, and connection is better than disconnection. But then I understood that's why the Hebrews named their God unity oneness, because that was at the root of their conviction as well. And it turns out that's all I needed. That one foundation, that rock to build on, that the Jews built everything that they built, I was able to build things in my life. Because if I believed that unity was better than disunity, then what else was I convinced of? I realized I was convinced that God exists. Why? Because unity exists at all in this world, that we can find it anywhere. If that existed there, then God had to exist before, because just as we say in here every Sunday and every prayer, we love because God loved us first. There is unity because God was first unified. And that unity is what we see here. Whenever we see unity, we're seeing God. So I'm convinced that God exists. I can, I'm convinced that God is good, that God is love. Why? Same reason. Because love exists. Unity exists. Goodness exists. Sometimes it seems in short supply. But that it exists at all means that God is the first cause. God is good. God is love. Third, God knows me personally. I'm convinced of that. Why? 
Well, because love requires a beloved, always requires some place to close the circuit. Why is there a trinity and not just one God? It's our understanding that there is always that circle dance, you know, that relationship that is revolving, constantly moving, you know. God loves me personally, connects with me. I believe and I'm convinced that Jesus is the same as this unseen God. And however we understand that theologically, because there could be a hundred different ways of understanding that, the truth of the matter is that he is Gamar. He is fulfilled, complete, perfect, one with, indistinguishable from this God. And that I can't see the God that I believe exists, but I can see what that God looks like in human form because I can see Jesus, one with the Father. And lastly, I'm convinced that I can live as Jesus lived. That's it. I can go tell you what I'm convinced of and tell you to go become convinced of what you're convinced of. But these are the things that I'm convinced of. I can't prove it to you. I'm convinced because of my life's experience, because of what I've been through, and I can only tell you that I'm convinced of these things. This is Jesus, this is Jesus' one and only way to kingdom, to the Father, to the Father's presence, exceeding the legal mindset, exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees by willing to deconstruct, by taking the pain, taking the disorientation, taking the confusion of being willing to let go Sell it all so that you can be prepared, ego shattered, to be open to something that comes from such a different direction you will not accept it otherwise. To fulfill law, to fulfill righteousness in intimate relationship and not in codes, not in rituals, and get to a place of fearless vulnerability that you are willing to be hurt so that you can have relationship and connection and to find abundant life by living it. That's Jesus' way. That's the Sermon on the Mount. That's what this is all about. Getting yourself to your personal conviction. And so the question is, I guess, what's in your wallet? I wanted to think. (laughs) What are you convinced of? Go find out. And as you're doing that, You're on Jesus' way. That's it. Let's pray. Mm. (sighs) Father, we make it so complicated. It, It just has to be more complex than this, we think. Our minds are looking for ways to be relevant. Our minds are looking for ways to perform, to fix, to be self sufficient to be separate from in order to feel like we have some kind of certainty or security. Help us to continue to chip away at that, Lord, by little things. Give us the awareness first that when we're presented with a choice that we can understand that to press through the resistance, to press through the perceived risk is to find a deeper conviction, to find a deeper connection with you. And help us to keep doing that day by day until we do break through. And thank you for all of this evidence that you've laid at our feet for us to go through 
and to find out what we're convinced of, Lord. But we see the good in the world amidst the atrocities. And we see the unity and the connection. And we see the sunlight and the life. And we know that that is you. That is who you are or this wouldn't exist. So thank you, Father, for all the gifts you keep giving us. And never let us forget that we love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.